From KCRW, I'm Evan Kleiman, and you're listening to Good Food. The Tulare Lake Basin in the southern end of California's San Joaquin Valley has a problem. It's sinking. Why? Because of persistent overpumping of groundwater. But the major landowners pumping most of that H2O have no desire to stop. What does that mean for everyone else who lives and works there? And what does it mean for the future of farming in the region? Oh, and better yet, why should you care? People are using groundwater, they are irrigating their fields, the land is sinking, and the public is paying for the infrastructure repair. And that's an estimated billions, with a B, in repairs. Los Angeles Times reporters Suzanne Rust, Jessica Garrison, and Ian James have been covering the brewing confrontation between state regulators and the agribarons who are pulling all that water out of the land. And they're here to unravel this complicated thread. Welcome, Suzanne, Jessica, and Ian. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. Can one of you start by explaining how overpumping has caused geologic transformations across the Tulare Lake Basin? Sure, this is a problem that has emerged in the Tulare Lake Basin. It's really an epicenter of sinking ground in California. But to understand that, we have to go back in time. This was once the largest freshwater lake west of the Mississippi, and it was drained generations ago to serve farmland in that area. And so it's been entirely converted to farmland, and water is heavily pumped in areas around the lake, which then affects the layers of clay underground. And when there are spaces left in the clay, it collapses, and so the ground sinks. And in some areas, that's been happening very rapidly. Why are we just seeing the effects now? Or are we just seeing the effects now? Uh, so subsidence, this thing you're talking about, the land sinking, has, has been documented actually for, for decades in the region. Uh, there's like a funny anecdote about this really famous USGS scientist named Joseph Poland who would do these surveys of the lake bed and, and in fact the whole San Joaquin area and he would start at one place and he'd go around the perimeter of the valley and it would take several months with him and his students but when he got back to where he started it was lower than when, when he had begun. So th- this has been going on for a long time. But what happened in recent years, probably starting in about 2012, we started we, we, we entered this period of time, which we call now the mega drought. The rains that we usually get you know, from year to year sometimes disappear for a few years, but they stopped and for years on end. So not only was there less rain, um, the state uh, water providers started cutting back on the amount of water that farmers and others could use in the region. So to make up for that shortfall, they began pumping groundwater at rates that they hadn't done before. And this also happened at the same time NASA was sending satellites over, you know, um, technology had increased. And so in sort of in real time, scientists were able to document how quickly uh, the groundwater pumping was was decreasing the elevation of the land, and in some places, about two feet per year. Overpumping is especially bad in the Central Valley city of Corcoran. How much subsidence has Corcoran experienced since 2015, and how has that impacted the town itself in practical ways? Corcoran has seen nearly five feet of subsidence in that time, and other areas just outside the town nearby, have sunk even more, about six feet. And this is Jessica. I might just add that, you know, we talked to a lot of residents of Corcoran about what it feels like to live in a place that is sinking in a measurable way. Um, And one woman um, described it in a way that I thought was really evocative. She was like, you know, it's like in an elevator that's going down but the elevator is going down all at once. So you don't really feel it. Um, And she said, what you do feel is the bill for paying for it. Um, You know, that my property taxes went up. She said her church's property taxes went up. And so she kind of had to pay twice. Um, But it's not something where you like wake up and think, oh my God, I'm falling. Um, Because it's very subtle and the whole area is going down. Can one of you paint a picture of Corcoran and the agriculture in the area? What's the town like? What kind of crops are grown? And who controls most of the farming? I mean, so Corcoran is, 
if you've spent any time in the San Joaquin Valley, it is a town like, you know, the, many of the towns. It's built near a railroad track. The tallest buildings in town are these giant buildings that help process cotton. It's got, you know, an, a charming grid of streets, little houses, some stores. Um, you know, the, the big thing you notice in Corcoran is the presence of its most famous company, and that would be the Boswell Company. And, you know, the, the name Boswell is on the park, and many of the farming communities that settled that area and drained the lake and own a lot of the land and grow mostly cotton for a long time, have a huge presence in the town. There is a church that, you know, was supported by one of the families, the, you know, the high school, like, football stadium supported by another. So you really feel when you're there that you are kind of in a town that is heavily dominated by these kind of legacy families that have been growing cotton and employing a lot of people for many, many years. Outside of town... Corcoran is a farm town and you go you don't have to go very far out of town before you see orchards of pistachios and you know big levees and fields that grow tomatoes and cotton and then if you look east you can see the peaks of the Sierra Nevada kind of looming up in the distance so it is a very you know it's a central valley farm town that you can kind of feel is dominated by these families even in the physical structure of the town. In 2023, something remarkable happened in the area. Once dry Tulare Lake reemerged in in per- perpetually drought-stricken California, that sounds like it should be a good thing, but not so much. Tell us what happened and why. What happened is that all of the river, you know, there's like many rivers that used to feed Tulare Lake the Cahuilla, the Kings, and all of those rivers over the last century um, have been, you know, kind of diverted for farming. And so they are no longer rushing into the lake bottom. And the lake bottom is now farmland where they grow millions, billions dollars worth of crops, cotton, tomatoes, pistachios. When there was an epic amount of rain and snow, as there was in 2023, the people that normally divert that water and take it for farming were like, "Mm, no thanks, we don't want it, or we don't want it all. And so these rivers and even small streams that like maybe people who'd lived there for 10 years didn't even know were streams, all of them were roiling and rushing with water. And all of that water eventually reaches the lake bottom And this year, it reached the lake bottom, and the lake came roaring back. And, I mean, it was absolutely incredible because, you know, you could go to Corcoran and drive a little bit west from Corcoran, and the road just ended. And as far as the eye could see, water and telephone poles kind of bobbing in the distance. And, you know, as to why that might not be a good thing for everybody, um, you know, those are people's jobs and, you know, some people's homes and some people's crops all underwater. I would add that there have been repeated floods in the Tulare Lake bed, including in 1983 and 1997 when the water has come back and the lake is reformed. One of the changes there's been in the past decade or so is that more pistachio trees have been planted around portions of the lake bed and those crops can't be fallowed the way tomatoes or cotton can be. And so that's exposed some growers who've planted more of these nuts to bigger damages in floods like these. And then the sinking ground has changed the topography so that some areas that didn't flood before have now flooded. It's so dramatic. Um, in, in 2014, the state of California passed the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act to combat overpumping, which we were talking about earlier. And the law required that f- the five water agencies that make up the Tulare Lake subbasin should come up with a plan for reducing pumping to levels that would stabilize the groundwater levels and ease the subsidence as of 2040. Has there been much progress um, made toward that goal? 
Well, how the process has worked is that the local agencies came up with a plan as they were supposed to. The state then said the plan was incomplete, told them, please come back with these various points addressed. The local agencies then prepared a revised plan, and the state said that second plan was inadequate and it failed to address how they would deal with problems, including the sinking ground and the risks of many more wells drying up. And now the state water board is going to be considering whether the state should step in to impose requirements like reporting pumping and charging fees to landowners. And so this is a pivotal point in that regulatory process where the state is going to decide whether to place this area on probationary status and start to impose these new requirements. So then in October of 2023, the State Water Board comes back and recommends putting the region on probation and imposes requirements to manage groundwater pumping. Naturally, these landowners didn't like the state's threat of disciplinary action, which also included proposed pumping fees of $300 per well and $40 per acre foot of water um, extracted. So how have they responded Landowners, they've objected to the proposed fees. They say it would be an undue burden. And they've also stressed that the state's groundwater law calls for locally led efforts to manage water. So even if an area is put on probation, the eventual goal is for that area to be in charge of its own affairs again. And so these large landowners, farming companies, have asked the state to provide more clarity on the process for getting off of probation if they take that step. They've also just urged the state to rethink this approach and have said they see various flaws in, in how the state is handling it. The state water board is going to be deciding in April whether to put this area on probationary status. How much do you think subsidence has cost the state and federal government, which means us, cost us, in terms of road and rail repair, canal levy restructuring, and the retrofitting of bridges and buildings, everything they've had to do to remediate the effects of the subsidence. Uh, This is Suzanne. Um, And the best estimate we have gotten is really vague. It's billions. Uh, The problem is most of this work isn't categorized as subsidence-related. So it's hard to pull out numbers or data on this. For instance, like roads always need maintenance, so do bridges. So teasing out what subsidence is causing versus age versus water damage or just plain old weathering, um, it's not how Caltrans or um, other other, um, agencies sort of categorize this stuff. So that's it's really really difficult. But but if you put all of the the numbers together over the years, um, experts say it's probably in the billions. I mean, it's clearly causing a lot of damage. I mean, if you take, for instance, the California Aqueduct, where the state has been able to uh, pull out uh, the damage caused by subsidence, they've actually made a point of doing this. They've spent eighty million dollars since twenty seventeen to protect and retrofit it. So it, it's it's big numbers. So what happens next? How does the Tulare Lake Basin get out of this jam while continuing to support the needs of farmers for water and making sure the ground doesn't sink so much it completely destroys the region's infrastructure and the ability to hold any water at all? Well, what happens immediately is it sounds like there's going to be an argument between now and April on whether this area should be placed on probation, whether the state should impose these additional requirements. Looking a little bit longer term, getting out of these problems and these patterns of dropping water levels and sinking land would require reducing how much is pumped out of the ground. And uh, that's been the main point of contention. The state law requires this area and other areas to do something about the overpumping, address these problems like land subsidence. And the real question is how quickly they may be forced to act. Also, there is an idea of allowing this lake to once again be a lake, at least part of it, and to restore an ecosystem there. And that's something that indigenous people, including the Tachioka tribe, have supported. And they've said some of the lake bottom that's now all farmland as the lake dries up could be set aside to allow for this lake to stick around and for some wetlands to remain. And so what they're saying is that all of these 
human activities and farming should cede some space for a more natural ecosystem. What a complex and interesting topic, and it was made so much easier to understand by the responses all of all three of you. So Suzanne, Jessica, and Ian, thank you so much for coming to Good Food. Our pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having us. Thank you. We've been talking to Los Angeles Times reporters Suzanne Rust, Jessica Garrison, and Ian James about the groundwater situation in the Tulare Lake Basin, located in Central California. For links to their stories, head to our website, kcrw.com slash goodfood. Coming up, the extraordinary life of agricultural scientist George Washington Carver and the legacy he left behind at Tuskegee University. Stay close. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. Welcome back to Good Food. In 1975, Carolyn Quick Tillery was having so much fun at college that, in her words, she forgot why she was there. She had arrived at the Tuskegee Institute in Alabama as an 18-year-old, learning to live on her own for the very first time. And as her academic standing slipped, the school threatened academic probation. She panicked, called the school president, and did what many an 18-year-old would do. She cried. He gave her a second chance, and she went on to graduate from Tuskegee, serve in the Air Force, graduate from law school, clerk under a Colorado State Supreme Court justice, and write a book. The African American Heritage Cookbook celebrates the 25th anniversary of its publication this year. Hi, Carolyn. I'm so happy that you're with us today. Hi, and thank you for the invitation. Carolyn, what was your goal when you started researching and writing these recipes and remembrances 25 years ago? I um, did not initially start with the goal of writing a cookbook. I started with expanding a law review article I had written on the court case McCleskey v. Kemp, which found that blacks were more likely to receive the death penalty if they killed a a, a white person than if they killed a black person. And I began researching the history of the death penalty. And some of the stories were so horrific that to escape uh, that trauma, that sense of trauma, I would go home and remember some of the foods that my mother cooked. And because I was in the South, there were vegetables and fruit stands where I could obtain fresh produce and go home and cook those comforting foods of my childhood memory. And I also always associated cooking with stories because the kitchen in most houses in the 60s was not a great room as we have today. It was geographically dislocated from the rest of the house. So in order to keep company in the kitchen with her and have help with some of the more menial tasks, such as chopping onions, which I hated, or polishing silver during the holidays, My mom would always tell stories about her family and her childhood. And before I knew it, the work was done. At the time, I was living in Montgomery, Alabama, which is approximately 70 miles from Tuskegee. And that's when the inspiration came to connect the story of Tuskegee's history with the foods of the local area. And that's when I really began researching uh, George Washington Carver's recipes. For example, 
or the Jessup Wagon, which was taken into African-American communities, not only to teach them how to farm, but how to preserve and prepare foods for greater nutrition value. Um, this, this wagon, was this one way that the Institute um, sort of went out into the community? Exactly. When uh, Booker T. Washington arrived in Tuskegee in 1881 as a 25-year-old graduate from Hampton University, he was only 17 years removed from his own emancipation. And the first thing he did when he arrived was to go out into the local community and acquaint himself with the population and their needs. And what he found encouraged him that what was needed immediately was an education that could result in their quick employment and ability to earn a living. But he saw terrible hunger and housing insecurity, food and housing insecurity. And he then determined that he could best help the local community by improving their condition so they could focus on education. And that's one of the purposes of his farmer's fairs and the Jessup Wagon was to go out into those communities because at the time, the majority of the blacks in Tuskegee and the surrounding area were sharecropping. Many of the owners of the property required them to plant crops right up to the cabin door. And so there was uh, a very little space for them to grow their own food, which required them to buy food from the farm store at higher rates, and it kept them in a cycle of poverty. So to help break that cycle of poverty, again, uh, I think Dr. George Washington Carver arrived at the school in 1941. He taught them how to use that space available to them most efficiently to produce the largest crop. He took that wagon through the community and taught farmers and their wives new farming methods. He, George Washington Carver was such an extraordinary person. In addition to all of his um, agronomy, all of his scientific knowledge with agriculture, what circumstances led him to the kitchen? Dr. George Washington Carver... Uh, was born into slavery, but he was treated more like a member of the household because of his always very sickly uh, medical condition. And as a result, he learned trades or arts such as knitting, crocheting, and cooking. So that is how Dr. George Washington Carver became interested and involved in food preparation. I, I would love if we could focus on a couple of other alumni or luminaries. Could you speak a little bit about Olivia Davidson and um, how she affected the school's success? Olivia Davidson was Booker T. Washington's second wife. Her um, major contribution to the success of uh, Tuskegee was her ability to raise funds and influenced visitors to come to the school to invest at the in the school. At the time that uh, Tuskegee was established, the establishment legislation only provided $2,000 per year for salaries and nothing else. So everything that they needed to build the school, they either had to raise it, build it themselves, or find donors. Keep in mind that they were located 70 miles from the heart of the Confederacy and faced opposition from those, some Southerners, not all, 
who believe that African Americans should not be educated and educating them was a threat to the status quo because they were less likely to be oppressed. So this is the environment in which they were operating in which to raise funds for the school. And Olivia was able to go north and bring uh, donors to the school and raise the money for buildings, et cetera, et cetera, which the students built themselves, and uh, many of which are still standing on campus. And they raised their own food. I think I counted nine biscuit recipes in the book. Can you describe a few of the variations And if there was one that was specific to Dr. Carver? Every Southerner has their own secret recipe for biscuits, and there are as many variations as there are cooks in a kitchen. And Dr. Carver's sweet potato biscuit recipe is found on page 147. I've actually tried this recipe several times after testing it, And it is an exceptional recipe. It's light, it's fluffy, and um, I serve it on special occasions. One of the things that uh, Southerners put on their uh, biscuits is fig jam, and uh, it serves up well with butter and fig jam. Oh, that sounds so good. So Dr. Carver is famous for his work with the peanut, and he developed nearly 300 recipes. Do you have an opinion about what you feel is the most unusual of those recipes? I I think what's most amazing about Dr. Carver's work was that he used science for the benefit of both African-Americans and white farmers. He encouraged uh, the white farmers to rotate their crops to put nitrogen back in the soil. And at the time, peanuts were a lowly crop and cotton was king. And so uh, with great difficulty, he was able to encourage them to rotate their crops with the peanut and uh, save the Southern economy because they had absolutely uh, depleted the ground of uh, nutrients needed to raise crops. And in doing so, he had to give them reasons to grow the peanut as opposed to continuing to grow cotton. So that's how he came up with those many uses for the peanut. And I think one of the most unusual uses was that he was able to create coffee from the peanut. Have you ever tasted peanut coffee? I've not tasted peanut coffee. (laughs) But I have had what you'll find at every Southern uh, football game is the either the roasted peanuts or the uh, boiled peanuts, boiled peanuts being my favorite. The best. I really, really want to thank you for the reissue of this book. It's such a, an important telling of stories. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate that. That was Carolyn Quick Tillery. The African-American Heritage Cookbook was born from history and her time at the Tuskegee Institute in Alabama. A new 25th anniversary edition of the book was published last month. We've got a recipe for those sweet potato biscuits on our website. Head to kcrw.com slash good food. In a minute, who needs a new restaurant recommendation? More like who doesn't, right? Memo Torres is here in a minute with five restaurants he thinks you should try. You're listening to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman. The perennial question, where should I eat today? If you, like me, are in need of some suggestions to get out of your dining rut, then Memo Torres has some ideas for you. You might have seen Memo's byline at LA Taco, where he's well-known for his neighborhood taco roundups. But he also curates a list of five new restaurants to try each month for Apple Maps. And he's here with his February picks. Hi, Memo. Hi, Evan. Oh, I'm excited for this. Okay, let's, <laughs> let's start in the South Bay. If we're in San Pedro this weekend, where should we stop for lunch? 
Okay, you have to stop by Busy Bee Market, which is kind of an old-school, legendary spot in San Pedro. They uh, claim to have one of the best uh, sandwiches there, and I absolutely love it. One of the most popular ones is called the Belly Buster, and it truly is a belly buster. Um, what it is, it basically has, you can pick two meats, and there's two popular choices for the meats. You can either get the sausage with chicken, or you can get the sausage with pastrami. Depends on if you want to get a little healthier with the chicken, I guess. But, I mean, these sandwiches aren't really that healthy. They're big, they're messy, and one of the keys that you have to get do is you have to ask for a little marinara sauce on top of the sandwich. Now, what I like to do is I'll take that sandwich, I'll take it down to the Korean Friendship Bell, which is overlooking the Pacific Ocean, and just kind of enjoy it. And you have to be ready to get messy with the sandwich. It's going to get in your face. It's going to get all over your fingers, especially with the marinara sauce. It's a big, filling, satisfying sandwich, and I just absolutely love to bury my face in it. Okay, so let's stick close to the coast, but driving north, um, we find ourselves in Westchester. First, help us find Westchester on a map and tell us why we should stop to eat there. <laughs> Westchester is like a sliver of a little city it's stuck between LAX on the north side of LAX, and it goes up to like the hill because LAX is kind of on a plateau. And below Westchester, you'll find like Playa del Rey, you'll find Culver City, and a scenic overlook of all of Los Angeles. So it's just a sliver right there on the north side of LAX. But this restaurant, it's called the Coffee Co. It actually started just as a coffee counter, and. Every year, I feel like they just expanded and expanded. They've been taking over the little shops next to it, breaking down the walls and expanding. And it's become a very popular local spot for people from Westchester, people from Inglewood, um, and any surrounding area. And they'll have a line, but the line moves pretty quickly. But they just have great breakfast, great coffee. It's become my family's go-to spot to meet up when we want to have a breakfast together after a little event, a little league event or graduation. But it's also very convenient for anybody that's picking anybody up from the airport or dropping somebody off and you want to have like that first or last meal. Coffee Co. is a great spot there. One of the most popular items there is the shrimp and grits. It's so good. It kind of reminds me of a diner. It does. It's the only thing it doesn't have is that diner counter. Other than the counter, missing the counter... Yeah, it's great service. There's tons of waiters, and I love the waiters and the, the wait staff there. A lot of them go really back to some of L.A. and the West Side's older establishments that don't exist anymore. Um, I don't know if anybody remember Pepe's over at uh, Grandview Bowling Alley in uh, the Grandview area of Venice Boulevard. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great spot, great wait staff, and terrific food, and good vibes. Awesome. So today, as we're recording... It's wet and cold, perfect for ramen. If we have a craving for ramen, where should we go? <laughs> so I've had a tough time putting this next place on the list just because it's very dear to my heart. It's, uh, it's Palms Ramen Yumea. It's on the corner of Palms and Sepulveda Boulevard in the Palms area. And I always enjoyed their broth, and I thought it was very good, and I thought I was being biased but I've been taking people there, and especially kids, my nephews, my stepdaughter, my son. And they're all into the anime scene, and kids that are into anime just fall in love with ramen through the anime scene. Um, watching, you know, Naruto and all that stuff. They're always eating ramen, and so they're always asking me for ramen. So I've taken them to different spots, and I think this is my, my children's judgment, they feel that Palms has the best ramen. So this one, I'm going to give it to them. And I've tried to go to like little Tokyo, Japantown, and there's great ramen there too, but there's just something about this broth. It's almost creamy in a way. It's very rich, um, and they use the thin noodles. I wouldn't get anything else on the menu. Just go for the ramen. Mm. Well, I think I know where I might go later when we get off. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to say, it's it's I love all these West Side recommendations, um, but I think we need to give our friends across town some love. What's on your radar in Los Feliz? So Los Feliz, there's a great little um, place called All Time. They always have such fresh food. The bread, they bake their bread 
fresh there. They have great cookies that are freshly baked, coffee's on point, and they're very creative with their menu. I feel like they're always in touch with what's going on in LA, so they'll they'll have like a carnitas taco on a blue corn tortilla one day. They'll have these delicious over easy eggs on some crispy fried rice and it's just very good. You know, if you want avocado toast, I'll have the avocado toast, which is LA staple now. But I enjoy taking people there when we want to meet, have a nice conversation, enjoy something clean and healthy that you walk away feeling good with yourself. Mm, yeah, all time. And finally, tacos. We can't of talk course. to you. <laughs> complete conversation without at least one taco. So if we want to try something new, where should we head? Okay, so Tacos Los Cholos, they blew up on the scene last year. They were part of our Taco Madness, annual Taco Madness at LA Taco, uh, where we pit all the taqueros against each other. And they made it to the final round against the previous back-to-back winners via Tacos. And it was cutthroat. There were allegations of cheating. They were getting into it on social media. It became a whole thing. But that's how, I mean, over 100,000 people voted between both of these guys. And it was just cutthroat. But it's easy to understand why. I mean, they, they have great meats, first of all. If you go to their menu, they have regular meat. They have prime meat. And then they have a... Premium meats. And so if if you're a meat lover like me and you just want a taco with really good meats, you go to Tacos El Cholo. And we've been blessed because they're originally from Orange County, but they just opened up a spot right there in the heart of Huntington Park, um, Pacific, just a little bit north of Florence. That's just a great taco. So if you're a meat lover, if you're carnivorous and you just want good quality beef ribs or a filet mignon, just go there. It's it's fantastic. Wow. A taco with filet. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. And they're grilled over mesquite fire. You just get that extra well, little char go. and smokiness. <laughs> it's, it's a wonderful taco. Thank you so much, Memo. Oh, thank you, Evan. This is always a pleasure. I, I love sharing the food and I, I love your show and I love coming on here and telling more people about where in LA they could eat. That was food writer Memo Torres. You can find his five restaurants to try this month on Apple Maps. Coming up, did you know that you can shop the Hollywood Farmer's Market on an app and have your produce delivered straight to your door? We've got the details next. I'm Evan Kleiman, and this is Good Food. Let's check in with Jillian Ferguson, who has some farmer's market news that we all could use. This is Jillian Ferguson with the Market Report. I'm reporting this week from the L.A. River Farmer's Market at L.A. State Historic Park in Chinatown. And I'm here because I recently learned something that blew my mind. Did you know that you can shop online for farmer's market produce and have it delivered to your door? This amazing service called Eat was launched by Food Access Los Angeles, formerly known as CLA, and it's currently in place at five of their farmers markets. I'm here with the program's manager, Isabel Thottom, and director of operations, Elizabeth Bowman, to find out more. Hi, you two. Hi. (laughs) Why was it important to launch an online ordering platform for farmers markets? Farmers markets are pop-up. They're temporary in nature. So, you know, if you're working during the time of a farmers market, you're going to church, you don't have transportation to the farmers market, you're homebound. You know, those are all people that we're not able to reach, that are not able to come to our farmers markets. And so we wanted to make sure that the farmers markets are truly accessible to everyone, which is inherent to Food Access LA's mission. And tell us which markets are participating in the program right now. Yeah, so right now you can order online from five of our farmer's markets. So on Wednesday, there's the Compton College Farmer's Market. On Thursday is the LA River Farmer's Market. And then Saturday is Crenshaw. And then on Sunday, you can order from both the Hollywood Farmer's Market and the Atwater Village Farmer's Market. And how does it work? Do you need to order in advance? 
Yeah, so you do have to order two days before the market closes. The reason for that is because our farmers and vendors asked us for that two-day minimum, mainly because uh, this is something I think many people maybe don't know about the farmer's markets, but farmers tend to pick their produce um, or their crop like the morning on their way to coming to the market or maybe the day before. So the reason for that two-day cutoff is just to make it easier on the farmer. What's amazing to me about this, too, is this is not like the Instacart model where there's a middleman who is going and picking your berries for you. The farmer is actually picking your berries and packing them to order, right? Yeah. We felt like that was very important to emphasize, too, because, you know, some of the response to this is like, well, don't get between me and my farmer. Don't get between me and my farmer's market. Like, this is an important sort of ritual that I have in in my life and in my week. And that's not what we're trying to do at all. We're trying to facilitate that access on maybe a day when you can't make it to the market because you're traveling. And also making sure that that sort of quality control of the farmer or the food vendor being the primary sort of handler of your of your produce is consistent. How many of your farmers are participating? Is everyone who comes to the market a participant? Not everyone yet. Um, I would say there's about 20 farmers on the market on E. Uh, the rest of that, there's about 60 vendors in total. So there's a lot of food vendors and a lot of farmers. So there's a good mix of people. And who's your partner for delivery? And what is the radius in which they're willing to deliver? Yeah, so we work with a local delivery service. It's called All-in-One Deliveries. All-in-One Deliveries is willing to go up to 20 miles from any of the farmer's markets. I think it's really cool because you could try, you could probably essentially try all of our different markets. Um, Most people are probably within that 20-mile delivery range. So, you know, one day if you want to try the Compton College Farmer's Market, you could get delivery from there. You could get delivery from Crenshaw, get delivery from the Outwater Market if you normally go to Hollywood. So I think it could be a really fun way to try all the different farmer's markets. As well as delivery, people can also come and pick up here at the market, right? How, how does that part of the process work? Yeah, so I think what's nice about the pickup option is, especially at Hollywood, there tend to be some vendors who have really long lines. So Bub and Grandma's, they might sell out, you know, or JG Berry's tends to have a really long line too. Uh, Ari's Gourmet Foods also. And we're actually right next to Ari's booth at Hollywood. And so I think the pickup option is great if you kind of just want to like cut down on your shopping, you know, to save you some time. If you're kind of in a hurry, you want to make sure like you really need the bread for something like that's a great way to just pre-order it. And then instead of going to those vendors and standing in their line, you actually come to our booth. We should also mention that the only way EBT customers can utilize the platform right now is through pickup. And I want to emphasize that this is because of regulatory barriers for online SNAP processing that prevent us from being able to accept EBT for online orders. So right now, the workaround is, is EBT customers can place an order online and then pay with their EBT, EBT card at the market. And all of the market match programs that we have that double EBT dollars are applied automatically. And so we're happy to offer that workaround, but we really don't feel like the mission of the organization or the mission of this project is complete until we're able to fully serve EBT customers with the delivery option and and online processing. Well, congrats on the launch. I hope people all over the city embrace EAT. It's wonderful to have a new way to support local farmers. Thank you. Thank you, Jen. Thank you. That was Isabel Thottom and Elizabeth Bowman of Food Access Los Angeles. We've been talking about the new online ordering platform for farmers markets. I want to turn now to one of the farmers who's participating in the EAT program. Rick Dominguez of Rick's Produce is here with us. Rick is a vendor at the LA River Farmers Market on Thursday afternoons. You might have seen him on Sunday in Hollywood. And Rick, I have known your name for years, but it's wonderful to finally meet you in person. Likewise. So tell us a little bit about your farm. Where is it and what do you grow? Well, uh, my farm is actually in uh, Fallbrook in uh, San Diego County. And we specialize in citrus and avocados. That's our main bread and butter. So you didn't start out a farmer. What made you shift careers and decide to devote your life to tending crops? Uh, well, it's uh, it's uh, one of those stories where life changes stories. <laughs> I actually, I used to be in real estate when uh, right after I graduated high school. When the market crashed in 2007, that's when I started selling at farmer's markets. I lost my job and I, you know, I needed something to you know, maintain my home. So I went into um, helping a friend, a farmer in, in Fallbrook, and I started with avocados and citrus. 
And uh, I loved it. I loved obviously being out here, you know, meeting different people every day. The beauty about produce, you know, fruits and vegetables and eating, connecting people with food. And uh, you never know who you're going to meet at a farmer's market, you know. And I've met so many people, all my network of friends and, and people I know as of now, mostly are from farmer's markets. Perhaps it's because you didn't start your career in farming. Um, you seem very open to alternative ways of getting your produce out there. You're the only farmer that I know of who actually has a storefront. You have one on Virgil. And now you're one of the early adopters of this online ordering system. How is that going? You know what? I, I've always um, say that um, agriculture has so many avenues. You know, it's food. You know, who doesn't like food? So a lot of this technology started w during COVID, you know, and I think that from there, from the, the, uh, the like you can say the COVID era, so many platforms open. But this particular one, it's, it's very, um, it's very close to us. Why? Because it's here in the farmer's market. You know, it's basically the whole, the whole store is the whole farmer's market is there for people that can't make it to the farmer's market. So it opens the doors to, you know, anybody now. So if someone's ordering from Eat for this next week, what should they order from Rick's Produce? Well, definitely avocados. Um, avocados, Haas avocados are in, uh, blood oranges are in, and Meyer lemon. I always recommend the seasonal items, like very seasonal. There's some items that are very small windows during the year, and those are the things that I like to offer. Even here, when people come and, hey, like, what's good? Oh, Caracara oranges or blood oranges, whatever. I know that it's not going to be in season for six months because it's not just about, you know, buying and produce and comparing from grocery. Yeah, there's more than that. You know, there's about the education, the, the offering, what you're eating, the connection, you know, like I said, connecting people with food. Well, Rick, it is such a pleasure to meet you. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you so much. And uh, great to meet you. <laughs> That was Rick Dominguez of Rick's Produce in Fallbrook. You can catch him every week at the Torrance, the LA River, the Silver Lake, and the Hollywood Farmer's Market. You can also find him on Eat. Try it out. Just remember to place your order two days in advance of the market. We'll have a link at our website, kcrw.com slash goodfood. For the Market Report, I'm Jillian Ferguson. Food Access LA is offering all Good Food listeners $15 off of their first EAT order. This offer is valid through the end of February and can be redeemed for pickup or delivery from any of the five Food Access Los Angeles Farmers Markets. They are Compton College, LA River, Crenshaw, The Hollywood Market, and Atwater. Head to orderoneat.org and type in the promo code GOODFOOD in all caps at checkout. That's orderoneat.org. One of the ways in which California has expanded access to local produce is through Market Match, a program that increases the value of CalFresh benefits at farmers' markets. But the program is in trouble. In his January 2024 budget proposal, Governor Newsom proposed cutting $33.2 million from the three-year $35 million California Nutrition Incentive Program, otherwise known as CNIP. What does that mean for the economy and for Californians who receive food assistance? We reached out to Frank Tamborello of Hunger Action Los Angeles. Hi, Frank. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Can you explain the Market Match program and how it works and who funds the program? Right. So you mentioned the California Nutrition Incentive Program, or CNIP, but very few people know the program through that name. What we are talking about basically is a program called Market Match. Market Match is a program in which low-income Californians using uh, their CalFresh benefits can get additional benefits when they shop at participating farmers markets. And these additional benefits they get can only be used on California-grown fruits and vegetables. So we describe this program as a three-way win-win-win. It's fighting hunger, it's promoting healthy eating, and it's supporting California farmers. And currently, uh, Market Match is offered at 293 farmers markets across the state in all but, I think, three counties. Uh, and it has grown 
over the past uh, several years from a program operating at about 15 markets to nearly 20 times that many. And I remember when it was first rolled out, what a struggle it was to get awareness to the people who could need it and use it most. It was such a surprise to so many that people who were on such limited income could shop the farmer's markets. Well, it was, uh, you know, getting outreach about the program was difficult, but getting funding was difficult too. And that's where the state comes in. For the first several years of the program, there was no state funding. There was a small federal grant and there was as much as we could raise from local philanthropy. Everyone from uh, Kaiser Permanente to Ultimed and some other uh, groups, you know, we had to patch together funding from different sources. It was around 2015 when we convinced the state to help fund the program. And the state was able to write a grant that serves as a matching grant for federal money for the program because these type of programs have become popular all over the country. So by 2015, even the U.S. Department of Agriculture was interested and they were offering funds for the program provided you could offer a matching grant. By getting the state to match the program, we were able to tremendously expand it over the last several years. You mentioned that it's a three-way win-win-win, also in terms of the farmers that it helps. Can you expand on the impact on rural farming communities? For many of our local farmers, they've got got a lot of overhead. They have to drive to the markets. Uh, they're, They're dealing with California's shifting weather patterns due to climate change. And they, they don't have like a stable source of revenue. Uh, for a long time, we knew that matching up low-income folks who oftentimes didn't have fresh produce available in their neighborhoods. You know, a lot of times the only produce in the neighborhood was lemons and limes sold next to the beer in, in convenience stores. Uh, by matching them up with local farmers, we could guarantee more revenue for the farmers. And so that's been a big, big selling point of the Market Match program. On the consumer side, we've had two tremendous effects in the last uh, few years that have been impacting people. Uh, First was the loss of a lot of their uh, CalFresh benefits, a lot of their food assistance, which occurred when the pandemic ended and all the additional benefits that had been added on were cut. This was last spring in uh, 2023. And the other one, of course, has been food price inflation. So we've been emphasizing also that for consumers, Market Match is an inflation fighter program. And for our local farmers, again, it's a guarantee of some revenue for them so that they can continue to function. And when they're functioning, the whole local economy is functioning better, both in the county that they come from.